coming up this hour. It's St. Patrick's Day. We're going to talk a little bit about the history and the origin of the holiday. And then we're going to be joined by Steve Schwetz from Through the Bible. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us on this hump day on this Wednesday afternoon. Today is St. Patrick's Day. Uh, so if you see people out there wearing green, uh, you do know why. I forgot that it was St. Patrick's Day until one of my kids mentioned it this morning. But before we get into St. Patrick's Day, you know, if you're out there, if you've been listener to the show at all for any amount of time, you know that I am a really big sports fan, just a huge sports fan, particularly of my New York teams. I'm a New York Mets fan. Going to be a big season for the Metsies this year. Also a New York Giants fan. That's been a bit of a struggle lately in the uh, football realm there. Uh, but I still love to keep up with Chicago sports. And there is not much more of an important position in all of Chicago sports and the starting quarterback of the Chicago Bears. And yesterday, uh, it was reported that the Bears made an enormous push for Russell Wilson, but the Seahawks decided not to trade their superstar quarterback. And so the Bears fell back and signed Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton, now the starting quarterback, or Nick Foles, they'll both be in it together. They're kind of the same guy. Do you ever remember that? Uh, you, you know that meme right now that if you're on Facebook or something where two things are just basically the same, it's the picture of two Spider-Men pointing at each other. That's how I feel about Andy Dalton and Nick Foles. Uh, they're basically the same guy, mediocre uh, kind of starting quarterback. And so I, I've been enjoying listening to Chicago sports radio today uh, and just and also my friends on Twitter who are Bears fans. And just the amount of of angst over the prospect of an Andy Dalton, Nick Foles quarterback room going into this next season. Because let's be honest, it really leaves you with very little chance to be competitive. I suppose there's a chance the Bears draft somebody. There's a chance that the Bears go out and get somebody. Uh, but man, Andy Dalton and Nick Foles as your starting quarterbacks. All I have to say to my Bears friend, uh, fan friends out there is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Although I'm a Giants fan, we've we basically go four and twelve, six and ten uh, every year for like the last five years. But uh, misery loves company, and uh, you can't win in this league without a good quarterback. And I'm not sure that Andy Dalton and Nick Foles are that. So here's my sports commentary for the day. It's the Spider-Man meme pointing at each other. Well, as I said, it is St. Patrick's Day today, and I thought. I, I, whenever a holiday comes, like a, a big one like this, I always think to myself, I have no idea uh, what this holiday is really signifying because, you know, I know that lots of people hang their their flags outside. Uh, my Irish friends tend to hang their flags right now. Uh, lots of people uh, getting uh, taking time off of work and hanging out at places here in da- Downers Grove, like Bally Doyle's and Irish pub from really early in the morning. Uh, it tends to be a high alcohol consumption holiday does St. Patrick's day. Uh, but what's behind it? You know, the Chicago rivers dyed green. We all get what's going on around it, but what is it? St. Patrick's day. I read here at the history uh, channel, history.com. St. Patrick's Day is celebrated annually on March 17th, the anniversary of St. Patrick's death in the 5th century. The Irish have observed this day as a religious holiday for over a thousand years. On St. Patrick's Day, which falls during the Christian season of Lent, Irish families traditionally attend church in the morning and celebrate in the afternoon. 
Lenten prohibitions against the consumption of meat were waived and people would dance, drink and feast on the traditional meal of Irish bacon and cabbage. Got to be honest, not a big cabbage fan, but I'm also not Irish. So St. Patrick, here a little background, lived during the 5th century. He's the patron saint of Ireland and its national apostle. Born in Roman Britain, he was kidnapped and brought to Ireland as a slave at the age of 16. He later escaped, but returned to Ireland and was credited with bringing Christianity to its people. In the centuries following Patrick's death, on March 17th of the year 461, the mythology surrounding his life became even more ingrained in the Irish culture. Perhaps the most well-known legend of St. Patrick is that he explained the Holy Trinity using the three leaves of the native Irish clover, the shamrock. It was first celebrated uh, around 9th or 10th century. People in Ireland have been observing the Roman Catholic feast day of St. Patrick on March the 17th. Records show that a St. Patrick's Day parade was first held in March 17th of 1601 uh, in a Spanish colony, and it, it made its way over to the United States very early. And so St. Patrick's Day is growing. It, it continues to be a day for the Irish to celebrate, uh, but it's helpful to know the background. And St. Patrick has many famous quotes that I think some of us know, but uh, they're powerful. His quotes are, are really uh, powerful. Here's his most famous. It goes like this. Uh, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right and Christ on my left, Christ when I lay down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, uh, Christ in every age that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Uh, he said it another way, this way, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. And so this idea of, of Jesus in everything, uh, tra transcending everything, is a powerful one. He also said, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. Very poetic, but this idea that we read out of the, out of the Psalms of being still and knowing that I'm God, just being. That, that, that's a word right now that, that many of us probably uh, need to hear, this idea of just being, being still, being uh, with all that uh, is going on around us. He also said, uh, in the uh, in the confession of St. Patrick, we read this. I pray to God to give me perseverance and to uh, deign that I be a faithful witness to him to the end of my life for my God. Saying, I, I pray that I will be a faithful witness to the end. What a powerful prayer. He went on to say, uh, and he watched over me before I knew him and before I learned sense or even distinguished before between good and evil. He also went on to say, I thought it'd be good to just read some of these quotes on the St. Patrick's Day. He knows, he says, I know for certain that before I was humbled, I was like a stone lying in deep mire and that he that is mighty came and in his mercy raised me up and indeed lifted me up, lifted me high up and placed me on top of the wall. And from there, I ought to shout out in gratitude to the Lord for his great favors in this world and forever that the mind of man cannot measure. 
Uh, and he, I'll end with this. He said this, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's uh, way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me afar and near alone or in multitude. Uh, so that is St. Patrick. It's just interesting. He goes on to say, uh, in the, in a single day, I've said as many as a hundred prayers and in the night, almost as many. So a, a very godly focus that you read these. And so it's kind of, it's not surprising. It's ironic in some ways that, that his holiday of remembrance has turned into just kind of a, uh, drunken revelry. And we understand how that happens, but I wanted to get more to the heart of what is it? Who is this saint? that we are celebrating here on St. Patrick's Day. So happy St. Patrick's Day. And uh, hopefully that you've got um, you got a big day planned for you, even if it just is uh, getting through work and getting home. But today is St. Patrick's Day. And to you Bears fans, happy Andy Dalton Day. Well, coming up next, I want to talk about a couple different stories that from different angles highlight the uh, topic of pro-life. And I I want us to wrestle and be informed about a few things. That's going to be next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, and I am sleepy. I'm tired today. You want to know I'm tired? Besides not sleeping great, you know, we're all still trying to catch up from the time change this weekend. But you ever just eat a really big lunch and it just makes you sleepy? I had a meeting today uh, at Bona Beef, which was wonderful. Don't know how you know if I'm allowed to mention names, but I will because it was uh, wonderful. And I was like, you know what I'm going to get? I just love a, uh, maybe you do too. I love a big meatball sub. And so I got a big meatball sub today. Probably should have cut it in half and brought half of it home. But hey, St. Patrick's Day. So I ate the whole thing along with some fries on the side, and it was glorious, and I need a nap because I ate too much for lunch today. That's what always happens, right? When you eat too much for lunch, you're just like, okay, now let me lay down and be unproductive. But hey, I got to do a radio show. So a little full today, a little sleepy, but going to power through. And uh, this is always the one where I get home, and my wife's like, oh, what'd you do today? And I said, oh, you know, had a meeting at Bona Beef and tell her what I had, and uh, and, uh, I see her jealousy in those moments. Uh, but yes, I enjoyed it very much, but I am sleeping. If you hear me just nodding off during an interview we do or just in the middle of talking, blame it on the meatball sub. But boy, was that good. I could go with a meatball sub more often. That was enjoyable. So uh, here's what I want to do. A couple different headlines. Christian headlines had uh, Christianheadlines.com had two stories. And then the Christian Post had another story. And I, I wanted to put them all together because I think they give a picture to some various pro-life issues going on right now. If you know me uh, from this show, you know that uh, I am unashamedly pro-life. Uh, I think abortion is one of the worst things, if not the worst thing, uh, that happens in our culture. And we can disagree with that if you want. You're not going to convince me otherwise. I think that we as Christians are called to be pro-life from womb to tomb and to stand up for the marginalized. And one of those marginalized groups, one of the biggest marginalized groups are the unborn. Uh, and so I think this needs to concern us. Now, I don't, I also do not think to be a pro-life Christian means you only advocate for the unborn and advocate against abortion. I think that's a huge part of it, but I think all too often that's all that we do when in reality, 
it also means advocating for uh, for those who are marginalized, those who are abused, those who need a voice. I think the church needs to be pro-life in those situations. We're going to do an article here about something Franklin Graham said about uh, how being pro-life means how we treat this vaccine. And I'm going to get to that in a second. Uh, end of life issues, euthanasia, other uh, showing people respect at their final years. That's a pro-life issue. Uh, ha- being able to feed your family, being able to make enough money to get people out of poverty. I think those are pro-life issues. So I think the continuum of pro-life or the umbrella, I should say, of pro-life, if I'm going to be blunt, I think is much bigger than a lot of us Christians often use it for. I think that that needs to be the lens. The pro-life lens needs to be the lens that we don't pick and choose our things, but instead that that is we want to be pro-life of all the people around us. And so that's the lens through which we look through. But I think at the top of that list, or at least near the top of that list, uh, is going to be the issue of abortion. And so I constantly want to bring that up and help us be understandable as to what is going on around us. And this is at Christian Headlines from just yesterday. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, he signs a bill permitting abortion coverage, quote, without limits. Let me read some of it. On Friday, Virginia's Democratic Governor Ralph Northam signed a bill into law requiring state taxpayers to fund abortions under any circumstance. Northam signed House Bill 1896 and Senate Bill 1276, ending a ban on abortion coverage for insurance plans placed by former Republican Governor Robert McDonnell in 2011. Uh, According to Catholic News Agency, the signing of the legislation was met by criticism from several state bishops on Friday. They said this, Bishop Michael Burbage said this, and, and uh, I should say the other one is uh, Bishop Barry uh, Knestout. He said, Governor Northam has crossed yet another tragic threshold by inserting abortion without limits into Virginia's health care benefits exchange. We decry the enactment of this deplorable policy, which is built onto the destructive lie that abortion is health care. We are saddened when we contemplate the increased number of unborn lives likely to be lost As a result, both bishops expressed their continued support of protecting the unborn, quote, without despair and with maximum determination. So many lives, they said, who have no voice except ours depend on it. And so the article is going to go on to explain more. But uh, this is a bad thing. This is uh, really troublesome. And now you add on uh, top of that, it says this. Pro-life groups. This is also now this is at the Christian uh, Post, ChristianPost.com. It says pro-life groups ask Supreme Court to stop federal government from funding abortions. A group of pro-life organizations have filed a brief asking the United States Supreme Court to stop the government from expanding the federal funding on abortions. The American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, and the Catholic Medical Association filed a supplemental brief in support of intervention on Monday in the consolidated cases, and it gives the name of the cases. At issue in the cases is a 2019 rule enacted during the Trump administration that prohibits federal title, uh, it doesn't say right there, family planning funding to go to entities that provide or promote abortions. In the supplemental brief, the pro-life groups expressed opposition to a proposed dismissal of the challenge by the Biden administration, which would likely reverse the 2019 rule. It says when the federal government issues valid administrative rules, the public interest supports enforcing those rules until they are changed through the proper regulatory procedures. 
abandonment of valid statutes and regulations signals the demise of the rule of law itself, stated the the brief. The pro-life groups are being represented by the Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative law firm that specializes in religious liberty cases and has argued before the Supreme Court. The brief also expressed support for a joint motion by 19 states to ask the Supreme Court to stop the Biden administration from scrapping the rule. So another important case out there uh, about uh, the expansion of funding of abortion. I know these are very complex things that if you're really interested in, you should not only read the articles, but go read uh, other parts of of uh, go do deeper research. But these are important. If we're going to be pro-life, these are important to understand. And so now another aspect of the pro-life um, kind of, of worldview, Franklin Graham, somebody who we've given a hard time to here on the show before. We read this at Christian Headlines. Franklin Graham endorses COVID vaccines. Uh, he said, uh, he says it's consistent with scripture in saving lives. Evangelist Franklin Graham says he has taken the COVID-19 vaccine and is urging others to do so. Graham made the comments to ABC News, which examined the divide within the Christian community over vaccines. Oh, 54% of white evangelicals say they'll get the vaccine. That's much lower than Catholics, Black Protestants, and atheists. Uh, Franklin Graham said, my father believed in modern medicine, his father being Billy Graham. If any time there was a vaccine or something that could help protect you, he was an advocate for it. He took it. I believe that it's consistent with scripture, that we protect our lives and do whatever we can to save life. I don't have a problem with telling a person to take an aspirin or telling a person to have a vaccine. The nation's COVID-19 infection rate is going to talk to us about the number of people. Graham said he has been given the vaccine and he's thankful for it. He also criticized pastors who talk, who tell their congregation not to take it. He said, I hope uh, that the pastors in the pulpit would tell people how they can be saved from God's judgment. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. I think a pastor for a pastor to tell someone not to take a vaccine is problematic because what would happen if that person died? Uh, then is that pastor responsible? I would feel responsible, he says. So interesting from Franklin Graham, uh, who often uh, uh, politically falls into where a lot of people who tend to be anti-vaccine are coming out of. Uh, and so really interesting words there from Franklin Graham. I wanted to do all three of those together because I do believe they highlight something about kind of a comprehensive pro-life worldview, kind of things in the news right now. You can find those articles at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by the announcer on Through the Bible, uh, which you can hear here on AM 1160 at 5 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. each weekday. His name is Steve Schwetz, and Steve is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. And we are thrilled to be joined by a good friend of the show, Steve Schwetz. Steve is from Through the Bible. And if you're like, I think I've heard of that organization. Well, Through the Bible has not only been around for a while, it's also one of our teammates here on AM 1160. You can hear Through the Bible weekdays at 5 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. right here on AM 1160. And Steve is going to talk to us here about how uh, 
Through the Bible is launching its 11th cycle of Through the Bible here on April the 2nd. So, Steve, how are you, man? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great, Brian. Thank you so much for having us on. I always love to have an opportunity to talk about Through the Bible. And it is amazing that we are on our 11th cycle, our 11th five-year cycle. um, And God has just been so good in providing through faithful listeners like those that are listening uh, to your program. It's been wonderful. Yeah. And so through the Bible, as we said, it it works its way through the Bible over a five-year cycle with 30 minutes each day through the ministry of Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who we'll talk about later. But help our people understand at kind of a, you know, Reader's Digest, 30,000-foot level, what is through the Bible? And talk to us about this saying you guys use about being on the Bible bus. Good question. Through the Bible is a five-year study that goes through the entire word of God, and it will begin its 11th cycle, April 2nd. We will begin with something called Guidelines for the Understanding of Scriptures, for the Scripture, and then it'll begin in Genesis. And then when Dr. McGee's finished with Genesis, he jumps ahead into Matthew, and then back to Exodus, back and forth, back and forth, until he finishes it all up uh, in the Grand Central Station of Scripture, as Dr. McGee calls it, in the book of Revelation. So if you listen 30 minutes a day, Monday through Friday, you will be going through the Bible uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, and oftentimes verse by verse. Some of the stuff he does, you know, kind of go through a little quicker, the genealogies and things like that, although there's lots Mm -hmm. of truth for us to, to get from that. He doesn't obviously go through every verse, but you will have a better overview than most people uh, if you spend five years uh, riding the Bible bus with us. Oh, and then, like you said, this is the 11th time through. And uh, I doubt people, you know, some people probably just do it once and they're done. But I'm guessing you guys have a lot of people who, to use your phrase, ride the bus multiple trips. Why do you think it is that people go through it again and again and again? I think there's several reasons. One is we're a forgetful people. So you Mm -hmm. need to be in the word of God, ideally every day, personally, not just turning on the radio and listening to to Dr. McGee, teach the Word of God, but you need to be opening the Scriptures yourself and reading. And one of the things that you can do along with through the Bible is you can read the passage and then hear Dr. McGee teach through the passage. And we encourage people to do that because they get so much more out of the program if they've done that. So I mm-hmm. think that's that's one of the reasons that it's it, it continues to be on. Also because God is faithful. He honors His Word. And God has not only you know kept us at the same level since Dr. McGee went home to be with the Lord in 1988. Um, But he has grown the ministry tremendously, particularly as it relates to everything that's going on with all the different languages that we're in Mm. now over 130 in the full broadcast, the full program and growing. Yeah. I want to ask you in a minute about the global impact, but, but first let me ask you about Dr. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, who is, uh, this is his ministry and that's who people will hear. Well, as you hinted at there, Dr. McGee passed away decades ago, which is just an amazing thing that his ministry, like you said, is not only continuing, but it is growing. Uh, talk to us about how, how do you guys even get your arms around the fact that, that the guy who's speaking had passed away a long time ago and yet this ministry is still thriving? Yeah, I think it's just another testimony to how God honors his word. And he you put a bunch of smart people in the room. Nobody's building through the Bible, taking uh, five years to go through the Bible every day, Monday through Friday, taking a a pastor who has uh, passed into the presence of his Savior in 1988 and not just allowing it to maintain, but continue to grow. 
And nobody can point to any one thing. I mean, Dr. McGee is a very good Bible teacher. He's he's great to listen to. I honestly believe if he was not saved, he could probably do a pretty good job as either a professional storyteller or possibly even a stand-up comic because his timing hmm. is so good. I don't mean that to demean Dr. McGee in any way, but right, the, right. the art of comedy is to be really good at telling stories and really good at timing. And he brings that skill to teaching the Bible. And as he puts it, another phrase that he uses is he puts the cookies on the bottom shelf so the kiddies can get them. He makes mm. difficult doctrine simple, and he points out Jesus Christ in every every book of the Bible. And God God honors that. That's yeah, evident. Yeah. We've seen it. Again, you, uh, through the Bible airs weekdays at 5 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. right here on AM 1160. You talked before about how through the Bible is not just having an impact here in America through places like AM 1160, but also around the world. Help us understand the global impact of through the Bible. Well, when Dr. McGee went uh, home to be with the Lord, we were in about 36 languages internationally. And those are really missionary outreaches for us. We uh, pay for those translations. We pay for those broadcasts. And we typically don't get any money back from those. What we do get back is testimonies and letters of how people's lives have been radically changed. And that's really what makes it all worth it. That's what resonates with our listeners that then continue to support the ministry because it's not just a broadcast into the U.S. and Canada. It really is a missionary endeavor of fulfilling Matthew 28, taking the whole word to the whole mm -hmm. world. Dr. McGee went to be with the Lord again, 88 36 languages. And today we are in over 130 different languages going for another, believe it or not, 150 languages, wow. not in the traditional broadcast way, but we're going more into a radio home group, small group model. And it's just exploding. It's going across India. It's going into Nepal. It's going into Bangladesh. And it is so exciting. And, and the timing of it with COVID, there's just so much as you, as you look back on the short term, as well as the long term, you see God's providence in the ministry through the Bible in so many different ways. It's, it's yeah. truly wonderful. That really is amazing. And uh, in addition to learning about the Bible personally, people are also able to become ministry partners in uh, taking the whole word to the whole world, as you guys like to yeah. say. How does it work for someone to be a ministry partner with you? We The main way that we ask people to partner with us is prayer. We have never been shy about asking people to pray for the ministry. When I joined the uh, as the host in the early nineties, uh, always talking about prayer before we talked about financial support. And we really, uh, put more of a program around that about seven years ago, we established the world prayer team. And that was people that were willing to sign up to get a daily email Monday through Friday. If they go to ttb.org forward slash pray, you can sign up for it. It doesn't turn into a solicitation request mm -hmm. you know, in a couple months, all you get is a daily prayer prompt. And that, it's a committed group of about more now more than 10,000 people that every day get that email. They hear a brief testimony about how someone's life has been changed through the gospel and how through the Bible has helped them. And then we can pray for that particular region. So for today, as an example, if you were on the world prayer team, you would get an email about Iran and how a listener is actually watching uh originally what was Arabic TV being translated into Farsi and how even though it's very difficult in an Islamic country to be a believer, people are able to watch the television program and both be saved and discipled in their faith. It's, it's truly exciting and it resonates with people. 
That's remarkable. And Steve, with the last minute we have here, you guys are doing another thing that we want to encourage our listeners, and that's to send in their Why I Love the Bible video. They can send that to BibleBus at ttb.org or upload it at ttb.org slash love. Uh, what is this? What is this program, Why I Love the Bible videos? It's just another way for people to connect with other like-minded believers who also love the Bible. So what we ask you to do is just Typically, everybody's got a cell phone, uh, a smartphone, I should say, or you've got a camera on your PC or, or Mac and simply turn that thing on and really think of it as an elevator pitch, something that's going to happen in 30 to 60 seconds explaining. Mm-hmm. If somebody asks you, what? what's so big about the Bible? Why do you enjoy it? What's the big deal? What would you say in that 60 seconds? And then just record it, record it from the heart. Don't overthink it and then just upload it. And we've done something similar to this in the past where we had people uh, hold a sign up with how many years they've been on the Bible bus. And we created a a virtual photo album online for everybody that posted. And that was cool. And this is just another way we're we're, uh, trying to connect our users with each other using modern technology. That's great. Again, Through the Bible airs weekdays here on AM 1160 at 5 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. On April 2nd, they kick off the 11th five-year cycle of going through the Bible. Steve Schwetz uh, with Through the Bible, he has joined us. Steve, this was a lot of fun, really helpful to learn more about Through the Bible. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for having us. We appreciate it. It is our pleasure. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Friends, welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. I think I've told you this already, but my family and I on Friday night we are going to be flying uh, to Arizona, where it is today, or at least when we're going, it is supposed to be 85 degrees and sunny. We're going to be there Friday uh, until Tuesday. Grand Canyon, Sedona, Phoenix, going to a White Sox game, and then coming home. It's going to be fast-paced. I just love to travel with my three kids and my wife. We are My kids are 17, 13, and 11. And uh, since early on in their lives, we've tried to travel a bunch just because uh, they do really well when we travel. We, we oftentimes, we're going to fly this time, but oftentimes we will just drive places uh, Florida or wherever else it's been. I grew up on the East coast. We drove, we've driven out to the East coast multiple times and, uh, and it's just a memory makers. Like these are the things I remember uh, most about my children's childhood and the time we've spent together. So anyway, super excited. And on a day like today where it's gray and, you know, mid to upper forties, uh, 85 sounds pretty stinking nice right now. So looking forward to that. And maybe when I come back, it'll be sixties here. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So uh, some of you might be wondering, Hey, are you going to do this show by yourself forever? The answer to that question is no, we are figuring things out. Ian Simpkins, who is my co-host for uh, a little bit over two years. Many of you know, he moved down to Tennessee. I tried to text with Ian yesterday. He's doing great at his new church, a church called The Bridge. You could Google it called The Bridge outside of Nashville. Uh, Ian is there full fledged. He is. He's preached a couple of weeks now and he is full fledged Nashville, Nashvillean. Would that be the word I use? Nashvillean, Tennessean. And so 
He is loving life, but uh, I've been without a regular co-host, had some great uh, fill-in co-hosts along the way here, but there'll be announcement coming here in the coming weeks. Uh, and so kind of as a bridge, I'm doing a lot of these shows by myself, but I can assure you that that is not the long-term plan here. And we are looking forward to sharing any news when it is finalized. Well, uh, at the Gospel Coalition, somewhere where we often will point you uh, and take you, uh, there's this Brett McCracken who's been on the show. He wrote yesterday a, a what I think is an important article because uh, this concept of deconversion is something that's been getting a lot of uh, of talk lately. Not just deconversion, but deconstruction of one's faith, where there's almost and I don't know how to describe it on, on some aspects of Christian Twitter, there is almost like a badge of honor for claiming I'm deconstructing my faith, and then there's been a lot of conversation around that, and so. Brett McCracken's going to weigh in here. He says deconversion is not as countercultural as you think. He said in recent years, the Instagram deconversion announcement has become a well-established genre. The formula is pronounced a former evangelical author, pastor, CCM star, that's a Christian contemporary Christian music star, or simply quote, raised in the church 20 something post a self-portrait looking ponderous and solemn uh, yet free. Maybe they're seen from behind looking out at some beautiful lake or mountain scene. Uh, they often talk about, I never thought I'd say this. It's terrifying to post this, followed by a lengthy narrative involving some combination of words such as evolving, journey, fear, discovering, uh, honesty, authentic, free, hopeful. He says, I don't mean to diminish the sincere agonizing and legitimate trepidation that accompanies an individual's decision to make a deconversion Instagram official. I'm just observing that this has become a genre, a predictable, commonplace and not all surprising artifact of a, quote, find yourself age. Far from renegade, edgy and brave, the announcement of a person's conscious uncoupling from institutional religion is simply going with the flow of a culture that mainstreamed such behavior decades ago. Rather than going against the grain uh, of Western culture, abandoning received doctrine and institutional faith in favor of a self-styled follow your heart spirituality is quite smoothly with the grain. To declare one's spiritual autonomy, Brett writes, one's unshackling from Christianity's constraints and old-fashioned ideas about sin and morality is simply to nod along with Oprah and her vast tribe of suburban moms. To disown a God of limitations, boundaries, and wrath in favor of a God who only wants to fund your, quote, best life is to join the ranks of frat boys obsessed with Joe Rogan, name it and claim it, prosperity preachers, and the vast majority of best-selling authors in religion, spirituality, and faith in the last 20 years. Brett's coming out swinging here. Uh, and so he goes on to say, the radical choice is to keep the faith. There it is. The actual radical choice, it doesn't mean we don't question. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle. It doesn't mean we don't even deconstruct on level some level. But to deconstruct implies then to reconstruct, to build back upon the foundation that is Jesus, that is the gospel. Sure, there are things from our childhoods or things that we've learned that, that we need to rethink and go over. But this kind of deconstructing all of Christianity and, and deconverting, uh, in Brett's words, uh, that's easy. That's the easy road. He says, when I keep saying keeping, when I say keeping the faith is radical, I'm talking about Christian faith in the true biblical sense. I'm not talking about American cultural Christianity in which doctrinal literacy is low, but concern for gun rights and border wall is high. No, 
I'm not, nor am I talking about a progressive Christianity that selectively invokes scripture for justice campaigns. Deconstructing comfortable forms of Christianity is good. To keep the faith of these distorted forms is no way radical. But I would encourage you, he says, if you're considering a break from Christianity, to make sure you've even given real Christianity a try. This Christianity doesn't fit neatly with your politics and preferences, but constantly presses you on different fronts, refusing to be boxed in or manipulated into what you want it to be. This Christianity doesn't simply affirm you as you are, but relentlessly pushes you to become more like Jesus. This Christianity invites rather than shuns the intellectual wrestling that comes with when you try to wrap your minds around an infinite triune God whose existence and work in the world will always be a bit mysterious. He's going to keep going, but for sake of time, uh, I want to read how he ends this because it's really long and really good. And I think he's getting at it uh, in, in a really uh, powerful way. Let me read his last two paragraphs. He, uh, Brett McCracken ends this article this way. He says, the reality is to accept all the costs of true Christianity, to believe all that it asserts, to go against the grain of the culture so dramatically is incredibly difficult and a little weird. If Christians are labeled freaks for what they believe and practice in today's world, it's for good reason. We should not be surprised that few follow the narrow path as described in Matthew chapter 7. We shouldn't be shocked that deconversion announcements on Instagram are common. Do you really want to be countercultural, he asks, and then he ends this way, then don't abandon Christianity, stick with it. A great article at the Gospel Coalition written by Brett McCracken. A lot more to it than I was able to get to, but I'd encourage you to go to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Deconversion is not as countercultural as you think. I would love to know what you think about what Brett McCracken had to write. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about that sad, sad story out of Atlanta and what's kind of going on nationwide around Asian Americans. And then we're going to be joined by Scott McKnight. You're listening to The Common Good. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss that uh, sad story, horrific story out of Atlanta yesterday. And then we're going to be joined for two segments by Dr. Scott McKnight. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this hump day, on this Wednesday afternoon. I do want to talk about and acknowledge just that sad story, the horrific story out of Atlanta, Georgia yesterday. Eight dead in Atlanta area spa shootings. A suspect was arrested. Six of the victims were Asian women, officials said. The shootings occurred within an hour at three separate spas. A couple, a little bit more uh, that you can know. Federal agents on Wednesday uh, joined the investigations into the shootings at three spas. The attacks began around 5 p.m. when four people were killed in a suburb north of Atlanta. Less than an hour later, four women were killed in two shootings in Atlanta. The victims in Atlanta appeared to be Asian women, as were two of the victims outside of Atlanta. Authorities arrested a suspect, 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long, after a brief manhunt. Investigators were working to confirm that the shootings were related. The FBI was assisting the local investigations, the agency said. No other details were let out. 
Uh, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms said in a statement that a crime against any community is a crime against us all. She said, I commend law enforcement for their quick work in arresting a suspect in the tragic shootings. I've remained in close contact with the White House and Atlanta uh, Police Department as they work with federal, state and local partners to investigate the suspect who is responsible for this senseless violence in our city. Uh, And a couple things stand out about this story. Uh, So I want to talk about this story specifically, but then something that's going on nationwide uh, culturally that I'm just going to be bluntly honest. I wasn't all that aware of. Uh, And we're going to we're going to effort to talk to somebody in the coming days, hopefully about this. But let me talk about first some things that are coming out about the shooter in uh, this specific uh, instance. Uh, it says this, we learned this, suspect religion news, suspect in Atlanta spot killings, quote, big into religion. Uh, it says, uh, Robert Aaron Long has been arrested. According to belief, uh, he had lots of issues uh, and had planned many things like this. But then we go on to read that he was, quote, big into religion uh, and that his church uh, actually, in a post in a now deleted Facebook page of the Crab Apple First Baptist Church in Milton, Georgia, indicated that Long was baptized there and records records show he was a member of a youth group there in 2018. Uh, his Instagram account appeared, uh, had a tagline, pizza, guns, drums, music, family, and God. This pretty much sums up my life, he said. There's a report that came out that his dad was either a youth pastor and or a pastor at some point. And and that it's the the result the loss of life is what is tragic and sad here. But I I, I keep being dumbfounded. I, maybe I shouldn't be, but let me just try to process with us. Maybe you can help me here. I keep being dumbfounded when we read these stories of uh, whether it be these types of shootings or a school shooter or an abuser, whatever, and and. Not all the time, obviously. You end up reading things, though, about they were active in a church. They've been baptized in a church. They had uh, their their Instagram page says, "I'm I'm you know God is I'm a Jesus follower." Whatever else, and and I want to just be like, how did it get to that point? Then, it did, obviously, some of you are screaming at your radio right now. Being a church doesn't doesn't mean that you don't have problems, or doesn't mean that you're even a Christian. Totally get it. But if you listen to this kid's, this guy's uh, video testimony from when he got baptized, saying the right things. And how does that person then end up to the point of just opening fire and killing eight victims? I, I, I don't have a great answer. There's mental illness there, I'm sure. But there's also just hatred. And, and it rises that just because as a pastor, I start to think things like this, just because they're in our churches doesn't mean uh, that they're not either being discipled by something else, uh, social media or whatever else it might be. And just because they're in our church doesn't mean uh, even that they're a Christian, let alone that they're growing and and displaying the fruits of the spirit. When I read today that uh, these things about this, this 21 year old who did this, just uh, the, the, the role that pornography played in his life, all sorts of different things. It just, Oh, it was troubling to me to just read. And then at NBC News, we read this. And this is kind of what was all over Twitter today. Uh, there were 3,800 anti-Asian racist incidents, mostly against women in the past year. 
New data, we read, has revealed over the past year the number of anti-Asian hate incidents, which can include shunning slurs and physical attacks, is greater than previously reported, and a disproportionate number of attacks have been directed at women. Uh, The research released uh, by reporting forum Stop AAPI Hate on Tuesday revealed nearly 3,800 incidents that were reported over the course of roughly a year during the pandemic. It's significantly higher than last year's count of about 2,800. And again, women made up 68% of that. And so the question is being asked, why? Why is this happening? Uh, Russell Young uh, professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University told NBC News that the coalescence of racism and sexism, including the stereotype that Asian women are meek and subservient, likely factors into disparity. There's an intersectional dynamic going on that others may perceive both Asians and Asian women as easier targets. But then it gets into this part that uh, so much at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic was pointed let's just be honest, by people in power, including our former president, was pointed at the Chinese community, at the Asian community, that it has kind of opened the door to bullying, to abuse, and this needs to stop, right? This is, we talked earlier about what it means to be pro-life. And one of the the things it means to be pro-life is to stand up for those who need support and need help. And the fact that we went from I, I, this shouldn't surprise us, friends, that we went from calling the coronavirus pandemic, the China flu and these types of things has resulted that words matter and has resulted in some sort of rise in anti uh, Asian uh, Yeah, anti Asian American attacks. Uh, and, and you start to read stuff from people that I really respect on Twitter who are Asian American, the things that their families have gone through in the last year, the things that their parents have gone through. It's real. And I'd encourage you to Google it. I, before kind of reading about this over the past week or so, I didn't really know this was going on. Uh, but it's a big deal right now. And it's something the church and the Christ follower must stand up against. Uh, we must call out these types of, of, you know, racism, we must call it what it is and, and not go uh, dismiss it and try to explain it away, but instead speak up. And I think that's the call of the church. We, we talked earlier about what does it mean to be pro-life? It means to stand up for those who need to be supported. And right now in our culture, that appears to be the Asian American community. Uh, and the question is, will the church rise up and do so? Uh, before many more of these attacks happen. Well, coming up next, we're thrilled to be joined uh, by Scott McKnight. Dr. Scott McKnight is a a New Testament professor at Northern Seminary. We're going to talk to him about his article called Empathy is a Virtue. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Uh, and we're thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by someone who was on the show just a couple weeks ago. He was gracious enough to come back on. He's a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. That's Dr. Scott McKnight. Scott, welcome back. Thanks for doing this again. 
Brian, great to be back with you and on the air with you. Oh, it is uh, our pleasure. And again, it's an honor. Absolutely. We, we're going to talk later again. We'll touch back on the book uh, that Scott wrote with his daughter, Laura Berenger, called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. But Scott, the reason I wanted to have you on is because uh, I grabbed this um, article at Christianity Today that you wrote just two days ago or so, a couple days ago, called Empathy is a virtue, basically highlighting the lack of empathy within pastors and and the real great need for empathy within the pastorate. So uh, before we dive into pastors, could you help people understand your definition or the definition of empathy and maybe how it compares to things we might know like compassion or sympathy? Well, yes. Um, Some leaders in the church have decided that empathy is a bad thing. Mm. And I'm I was when I first read this, I was stunned. I thought, really? So what I started doing is paying attention to what I immediately thought. What what do they mean by empathy if they think it's bad? So I started paying attention and they were defining compassion as feeling with and compassion as rational. Mm. And then they were defining empathy as feeling in and getting lost in an irrational emotional world. Hmm. Well, I thought, okay, that's <laughs> not what empathy means. Right. Um, and furthermore, they're defining, when you start defining words like that by looking at what's well, called the etymology, sympathy means to feel with, empathy means to feel in, and then extrapolating from that, that when we're in someone's feelings, we're getting lost in them. We're losing boundaries. We're becoming irrational. Um, that's not how we define terms. Yeah. But psychologists, for instance, define uh, empathy as central to psychiatry, psych- psychotherapy, mm. and clinical psychology. The construct of empathy involves not only the affective experience of another person's actual or inferred emotional state, but also some minimal recognition and understanding of another's emotional state. Hmm. Empathy for the psychologist, my wife is one, is an ability to listen to another person and empathize with their situation. Yeah, It has nothing to do with whether you're judging the situation to be good or bad, right or wrong, rational or irrational. It is um, an aspect of human relationship. Yeah. People who love another person empathize when they express sorrow or they express joy. So um, a common definition by using the Bible is we weep with those who weep Mm. and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And Brian, it is my conviction that all genuine Christian love is empathic or has empathy. It also has compassion. Mm -hmm. And all Christian pastoring should have a dimension of empathy to it. Without empathy, we only feel, let's say, we only feel what we feel. When we have empathy, we are actually transcending our own world and, let's say, our our personhood Mm -hmm. and entering into another person's world in order to understand them better and, um, let's say, as pastors, 
help them grow in Christ right. as human lovers, as people who understand that person so we can understand them better and relate to them better. Something like that. That's, How's that? Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. I guess it raises, I just want to keep saying amen as you're saying that. You know, I'm a pastor uh, as yes. well. Uh, and and th- what I'm saying, what I hear you saying, I, I'm just like, yes, that that's what we're called to do. What's the flip side? What's the argument against what you're saying? I'm not asking you to <laughs> agree with the argument, but what is the yeah. argument you hear against it? Well, I hear two things. I hear, um, I hear um, that it's irrational. Uh, that we're losing control of our mind, our our reasonal uh, reason, our faculties. Uh, I hear also that we are entering into uh, another person's um, emotional world, and in so doing, we are um, crossing boundaries into areas that are, uh, let's say, theologically or morally inappropriate. Mm. So for these people. To empathize with someone, let's say someone who is angry about their children in a way that is beyond the anger that they should have with their children. To empathize with that person, according to these people, would be to join in that anger against their children. Uh, And I would say, no, that's not what empathy means. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Empathy doesn't mean that I adopt the moral posture of another person, but that I I understand that, I, you know, I, how many times does a psychologist say, I, you know, even in a stereotype way, uh, do I hear you saying that you're angry? You know, yeah. that is an attempt to express rationally um, a feeling. Yeah. And so when I hear uh, that there's a problem with that, it's Let's say it's morally wrong to, I don't know of morally wrong emotions. Uh, I think I'm, I have some problem with that category. But if it, let's just say that they feel angry in a way that's inappropriate. Um, I don't think that I'm making a moral judgment when I empathize with that person's anger over their situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we do empathize with that, we enter into a realm that's inappropriate. That's not a problem with empathy. That's a problem with boundaries or with moral judgment. Yeah. Uh, And I know there are some people who, if you came up and expressed your feeling, they would feel your feeling no matter what it is. And uh, it could be morally objectionable. I hate um, all people who live in the Chicago suburbs. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we don't want to um, enter into that feeling and join that moral judgment. But we might say, you know, I understand that you have some resentment and hatred, actually, toward uh, suburbanites. Can we talk about this? I think uh, pastors do that. My... uh, I often tell my students, Jesus understands what you're going through. Mm. This is what Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. He's entered into our world in such a common way that he understands our experience. That's sympathetic. That's empathic. That's what I think identity with other people and pastoral relationship is all about. Yeah. I'm thrilled Scott's going to join us for another segment. But before we do that, with like a minute or two that we have left here, uh, you do point out in the article, lack of empathy is kind of the doorway or it characterizes narcissism. Help us understand that a little bit. 
You know, the characteristic of a narcissist is a lack of empathy of other people. So I, I got to tell you, Brian, when I first heard that there were some Christian leaders in the United States talking about uh, that empathy is bad, I thought to myself, well, they've got to be narcissists. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, that was the first thing that went to my head. And then I've, I've been reading a medical doctor and I've been reading some psychologists and they would say, yeah, that's that's what they are. Mm. Those are the sorts of people who are down on empathy are people who are narcissistic. And a narcissist is a person incapable of entering into another person's reality because they are so protective of their own reality that they don't want to leave it. And they want people to be colonized by their reality rather than entering into the world of another. That's right. Again, that uh, that blog post up at Christianity Today is called Empathy is a Virtue. And we are thrilled to be joined by a good friend of the show, Scott McKnight, professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, also the co-author, along with his daughter, of a new book, or it's been out a couple months now, but a book called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And Scott, where we left off, you were talking about uh, a lot of pastors kind of not having uh, kind of saying empathy isn't a virtue. We talked about narcissism. Uh, as I said, I know a lot of pastors and I feel like most most pastors I know kind of start with, I want to be a good shepherd. I want to be there for people. I want to be empathetic. And somewhere along the way, a lot of pastors end up much more narcissistic, much more power hungry. Uh, do you agree with me that that's kind of the way the trajectory of things? And if so, why is that so prevalent? Well, um, if you know, I think if we had uh, an analysis of this that was foolproof, we could weed them out and we'd <laughs> never have a narcissistic pastor again. <laughs> yes. Um, nice. But, um, okay, I'm um, two things. I, I start where, well, I should put it, I, I am with many pastors where they start hmm. in seminary. That's right. That's right. Or just at the beginning of their calling and they're out of college and, maybe 32 years old and they've started serving in a church and now they're coming to seminary for further training. Um, and then uh, I know a lot of pastors who've been at it for 30, 40, 50 years. All right. I would say the first thing is this, is that Chuck DeGroat in his book, Narcissism Comes to the Church, made a statement to me one day that all pastors are on the narcissistic spectrum. Interesting. And that is, he said, look, we're, we want to get up in front of people, even if we don't want to that much, and we have to perform, we have to teach, we have to exhort. He said, people who do that are on the narcissistic spectrum. A lot of people are on the low end and barely show signs of it. Others uh, get all the way out there. All right, so I, I would start with that. The second thing is, is that people don't become narcissists because of a church mm-hmm. or because of a leadership opportunity. Uh, let's just say this, that authority and power draws out of some people's personalities ugly things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no one becomes a narcissist because of a church or even because of the power is that the power, the authority, the glamour, the glory, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the celebrity of it all 
draws on their personality and they don't control it. They don't discipline it. They let it take over their personality. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I would say that. Um, and then the third thing is, I, I think the big problem here is that, and I'm talking about myself again, and what I do as teaching in a seminary, is I don't think we emphasize character enough. Yeah. We tend to focus, we measure pastors by the number of people who show up on Sunday, the number of bills that are put in the plate or mm-hmm. donated, however you want to do it, and the number of, let's say, um, measuring successes like baptisms or new memberships or you know some kind of new ministry that we have where we are succumbed to numbers. Mm-hmm. I would I would say to use the language of the book of Revelation, that's Babylon. <laughs> that's that's the world that's worldliness um, entering into the church. We need to develop a greater sensitivity toward character. And and we we talk in our book, Laura and I talk in the book about Tove as the character that is goodness. So let's just use the word Tove. We need we need to focus on personal, insightful, in, intra, introspective living, where we ask ourselves, "Am I tov or am I not? Mm. How much tov is in my relationship with my spouse, with my children, with my neighbors? Would they look at me as someone who's tov?" Mm. So the second thing then is, I think we have to develop tov in our various relationships at the professional or in the case of a pastor at the church level. And then uh, third, we need to ask whether our church is beginning to develop the characters, characteristics and elements of the character of Tove. Yeah. Um, so I think that we, we need to focus on character more. So those would be my thoughts That's on great. how it is that a pastor who begins, uh, you know, I agree with you. The young pastors I know, they, I don't think they're in it for the money. I don't think they're in it for the glory, but I am theological enough to say, I don't know all their motives. And they, what looks like a desire to serve the Lord can be a desire to become famous. Yeah. I, I, you know, I do have students who, who want to be known. Mm. They want to make an impact. That's very self-serving. Yeah. And I think they need to be careful about that and watch that characteristic in their life. But we do need to focus on character and measuring character development rather than the standard um, measures of success that we find in Babylon yeah. in Revelation 17 and 18. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. That is a really good word. Uh, let me ask you this. When we talk about empathy and then when we also talk about this con- this concept of Tov that you and Laura write so well about in your book, A Church Called Tov, Uh, Are these things that we can grow in? And if so, whether we're a pastor or we're just a Christ follower and hearing what you're saying, uh, are these things we can grow in? And if they are, what are some steps? How do we grow to be a more empathetic person? Character forms out of practices most of the time uh, through the power of God's spirit Mm -hmm. and the grace of God. So I think we need to practice actions of empathy, which means we need to be exposed to people in pain, people whose voices we need to hear. So we need to become better listeners. 
practice listening and entering into the world of others. And then I would say we need to practice a showing empathy to other people enough to where it becomes more of an instinct. And then I think when we, I, I find this, Brian, my um, women students who have been abused hmm. have an incredible instinct for detecting abuse. And I think we can detect. I think they have this is the skill of empathy there. Yeah. I think we can detect um, uh, pain in other people the more we are exposed to people in pain. My students and pastor friends who who work in prisons and in jails have an instinct about things that I would never have thought of. That's right. And it's the practice of it. So I think we need to develop practice um, so that it forms character. But but let me emphasize this. We need not to be advertising that we're practicing empathy. <laughs> yes, yes. The next thing you know, we're, draw, we're getting celebrity status for empathy. And that's the opposite characteristic of of a Tove person that's right. is to draw attention to themselves for the good things that they're doing. Yeah. And Scott, let me ask you one more question again. This might be unfair because we don't have a ton of time, but you're doing a great job online, your book. Uh, I follow you on Twitter of just kind of pointing out these things, these things that trouble you within the church, uh, asking a lot of the hard questions. How do you not become cynical? How do you not become jaded towards the church or to ask it in a more positive way? How do you remain hopeful about the future of the church? Well, um, it is true, Brian, and sometimes it, it annoys me that I have to point these things out mm-hmm. um, because that's not the way I am. I'm I'm uh, constitutionally optimistic, and I am not a cynic about the church. I hang out with lots of Tove pastors, mm-hmm. my pastor, Jay Greener, and the assistants, um, Amanda Holm-Rosengren and, and Stephanie, uh, these are these people are tove. Yeah. I mean, they're working at doing good things. Nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. And I have students and I have colleagues, you know, my colleague, Lynn Coick. Mm-hmm. I just think the world of her and Nijay Gupta. These people are tove. I'm with a lot of tove people. That's great. And I think maybe, Brian, because I hang out with so many tove people who expose my own lack of toveness, <laughs> um, like my wife, she's tove. Yeah. Um, you know, all the time. And I, I would say that it's because I am with Tove people so often mm-hmm. that when I when I see something that's not Tove, I I call it out. Now I didn't used to be as active on Twitter. Mm-hmm. My daughter got me involved in Twitter. <laughs> it's her fault. <laughs> but yeah, she's gotten me involved in saying some of these things, but um, I think we need to call out these instances where there's a lack of toe. I agree. And Scott, you're as someone who follows you on Twitter. We're very glad that you're there. I think it's a very useful thing. Appreciate it. Again, Scott McKnight, professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. His article is Empathy is a Virtue. We've got it up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages at Common Good Talk. Uh, also, the author, the co-author, along with his daughter, of A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. Scott, as always, this has been our pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. Good to be with you again. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, really glad to have you with us today. Something we've been doing over the last couple of months, really the last year since the pandemic began, is that we are uh, trying to end with some good news, some inspiration, whatever else it might be. And I found two stories that kind of put a smile on my face. The second one's just funny. Uh, but this first one is somewhat inspiring. So both of these are from the Good News Network. It says this, 52% of Americans surveyed say they w- they volunteered for the first time during the pandemic. Uh, 65% of Americans said the pandemic provided them with a, quote, wake-up call to reach out to their communities. And a new survey of 2,000 Americans revealed more than half are doing just that by volunteering. In fact, 52% reported volunteering in their communities for the very first time as a result of the circumstances brought on by the pandemic. Delivering food to essential workers, volunteering to help the elderly or incapacitated maintain their homes, and volunteering at a food pantry were among the most common ways respondents had volunteered since the start of the pandemic. Yet seven out of 10 respondents reported that while the COVID-19 effects effects on their community made them more eager to volunteer, they've hesitated due to safety concerns. And that makes sense. Uh, To avoid anxiety about uh, supplies at job sites, be sure to bring your own bottle and of hand sanitizer. They're trying to give you things that you can do. Uh, It said, best of all, nearly seven in 10 reported that as more people become vaccinated, they hope to increase their time spent volunteering. Here's the most common volunteer activity since the start of the pandemic. Delivering food to essential workers was number one. Volunteering to help the elderly or the incapacitated neighbors maintain their homes was two. Collecting items for food pantries was three. Volunteering at a food pantry is four. And donating blood was five. And this uh, person in the article uh, ended this way. It's commendable and heartening to see so many Americans stepping up to lend a helping hand in their communities during this challenging time. I just wanted to read that because it it gets to something I believe. We do a lot of bad news stories on here, a lot of things that are uh, struggles and kind of make you just kind of burdensome. But I want to be reminded that most people out there, I believe, are good and they are wanting to help their neighbors and they are wanting to serve their communities. And uh, I want to highlight those. That's what we're seeing there. People volunteering. And the hope is that that won't change as the pandemic winds down, hopefully, but that instead we will be a people uh, who watch out for our neighbors, who watch out for the less fortunate, who volunteer and give of our time, treasures and finances. Here's how I want to end the show, though. Uh, This article, wife's humorous obituary for late husband goes viral. Cause of death, she said, being dead sexy. (laughs) Laughing in the face of death is often just what the doctor ordered because humor can be a powerful weapon against grief. And one widow's wise cracking obituary went viral because we all want that prescription. The devoted wife in Omaha, Nebraska, chose to transform her despair into an affirmation of giggles in the epitaph she wrote for her, quote, dead sexy husband. Crystal and Eric Souser were married for 13 years until sadly on February 26, Eric lost a two year battle with cancer. One of the things Crystal holds most dear about her husband, Eric, was his uniquely warm and quirky sense of humor. When it came time to write his obituary, the standard death notice templates just wouldn't do. She needed something less than grave. (laughs) Nice. Deciding to depart from convention, Crystal penned an elegy that instead spoke to the exceptional kind of man Eric truly was. 
Uh, his departure, she wrote, was just in time for him to make his spiritual appearance at every Red Sox spring game. If you knew Eric, you knew you were loved, and there's a good chance he told you that. Probably sober, but maybe not. She also wryly listed her husband's priorities. Eric loved, in this order, his smoking hot wife, his brilliant kids and family, his many friends, the Boston Red Sox, the Kansas City Chiefs, before being a Chiefs fan was cool, the Huskers, Liverpool football, QT, Ice tea. Adidas sneakers, fishing, backpacking, hiking, hunting, and any old Chevy he saw on the roads. In terms of the memorial service being held March 4th, she wrote, admission is free to all who attend this once-in-a-lifetime show for the greatest man on earth. Following the service, the family requests jamming out to Ozzy Osbourne and raising a cold beer in celebration of Eric's life. In lieu of flowers, please pray that the Nebraska Huskers have a winning season. After the obituary was published online, Crystal was surprised to learn that the post uh, had gone viral. While she thinks Eric might have been a bit embarrassed, he would have very much appreciated the way in which she captured his spirit. Uh, She told Good Morning America, he'd be happy that this story is generating inspiration and love. If there's anything Eric and I can do, it's send some love out there. And there's no better way to be remembered than that. You know, times I just wanted to end with that just for this reason. Uh, a lot of times, uh, rightfully so, death is just so somber and it's so hard. But I've often said in when I preach at church about this kind of topic is uh, that for the Christian, the funeral is a time of celebration, uh, that we are sad, those of us who are left behind. But the one who is gone is uh, is is not sad that they are OK and we can hold on to that. And and therefore we can celebrate and be sad. I don't want to pretend we shouldn't be sad at funerals or anything, but then we can celebrate uh, their life well lived. And here's a man who died young and his wife said, you know what? I'm going to remember him the way that he lived with humor, uh, with uh, encouragement and all of these things. And she was a good writer and it was hilarious. And there's a reason it's going viral because people are latching on to Wow, somebody was able to have this posture, even though they lost their husband. And wow, how is that? And I want to just close by just saying that we as Christ followers, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we can approach death differently. We can uh, say, uh, you know, where is death is your victory? Where oh death is your is your gain? And we can ask that question and we can say what Paul said in the book of Philippians, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's not something that we have to fear and that instead we know that uh, to be uh, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, and I wanted to encourage us in that way because we're living in a pandemic and it's a difficult time. And and while I found this just funny, I thought it also kind of pointed to something poignant and important for those of us, especially who follow Jesus, who put our hope, faith uh, and 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 just our our hope for our future in Jesus Christ. I think this has so much for us. Well, I'm glad that you joined us. I'm looking forward to being together again tomorrow from four until six o'clock. Until then, have a great Wednesday night. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.